Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Hello, welcome to today's episode. I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry-Khan and today's topic is one I find as a case manager and psychologist working in personal injury to be one of the trickiest to navigate. And I wonder if it's the same for you too. Catastrophic personal injury carries a prognosis that usually means limited change and the impact on the family or the couple dynamic family functioning is just massive. And the sadness and the trauma well, I mean, it just is immense. Families and partners are, you know, they are marked with profound loss and grief. And so the question for me is often, what do we need to consider when working with clients who exist within a traumatized family support system? And what is it that we need to think about in the work, particularly before an MDT has been put in place? And I guess the the emphasis on that is for those case managers who are doing an immediate needs assessment um, or personal injury lawyers who um, have responsibility for the well-being of the client um, before anyone uh, has been professionally put in place uh, due to the, the stage at which litigation is. And who better to ask than Dr Ndidi Boyachi, consultant clinical neuropsychologist with the psych practice who has a ton of experience and skill in this field with brain injury clients. So welcome, Ndidi. Hi, thank you. That's a very nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it deserves it. You are very skilled in this field and I'm very grateful to have you here. So thank you very much for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for um, inviting me. So tell me, Ndidi, how did you get to be where you are? Tell me a little bit about your journey um, into <clears throat> clinical psychology and, and specifically clinical neuropsychology. So, I mean, I've always had a, a sort of passion for um, the mind and the brain. And my first degree, my BSc, was actually in psychological sciences. It basically was a mini neuropsychology degree with psychology slapped on top. But it met the um, graduate basis for chartership. And so after I did my degree, um, I went off to America for a little bit where I um, just worked with older adults. And then that gave me the inroads to get an assistant psychology job and then got onto the doctorate course. And then throughout the doctorate, I always ensured because I was always a little bit frightened of neuropsychology, not because I wasn't Mm. interested, but because there was a sort of, um, you know, there's a lot of jazz around neuropsychology. It's quite prestigious. And I just thought, God, what if I can't do it? So I, the way I approach fear is I force myself to do it. So I made sure on every placement I did neuropsychological assessments, even if it wasn't a neuro placement. And that's really how my love for neuro was birthed. And um, on qualifying, I did uh, QICM fairly quickly after qualifying mm-hmm. and, you know, had a bit of a stint in health, um, then HIV neuro. And from there, I worked at a Wolfson and then really at Wolfson I consolidated a lot of my skills in both diagnostic and, and in rehab and rehab is something I feel incredibly passionate about in particular over the years I've become much more I guess specialized in kind of working with teams so the multidisciplinary team um, working with couples families and um, also working with systems effectively so I guess it's probably apt for us to be having this conversation today with with kind of my background so I'm a trained couple therapist 
Um, I'm also, as you know, a qualified clinical neuropsychologist and a clinical mm. psychologist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a blimming impressive CV, I have to say. And, you know, that's it's amazing because you don't get that combination actually really do you and also it seems like you've had the benefits of having a a neuro heavy undergraduate degree so it's really been neuro has been part of your higher education journey for well since the beginning Mm. so you you kind of know it quite well (laughs) so my cv suggests but yeah i guess the curiosity about the systems in which we're working with is really where expertise is developed and i i guess all these the various degrees that i've done have just really helped um, yeah, support the interest that I have within this area. Mm. I think it's really important when you're working with individuals with brain injury to consider the systems that they are embedded in. You mm. know, the key to ensuring that the things that are learned within the rehab context continues and is good carryover. They are often the front line. They're there when you know people are distressed. They often are experts in in sort of pre-injury manifestations for the clients and they can Mm. often be a rich source a rich resource really so um yeah i think it's really key to know the 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 system around the person yeah no definitely and can you um system feels like a um, a word that we psychologists can throw around which may mean something different to our (laughs) non-psychology audience do you think you could define that for us I guess what I mean by system, so I often have, um, like, you know, being a psychologist, I often think about um, the individual, you know, so when you're, you're, you're born, you're born into a family. So the, your first system is the family around you. Um, and then there is another system, which is, you know, your, the culture. And that could be culture incorporates, you know, religion um, and spirituality. It also involves kind of education. Um, ethnicity and then within all of that 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 second um, layer system you're within the wider system which is society as we know it you know and society as we know it that has its own sort of um, the social context has its own kind of influences that all need to be incorporated when addressing the needs of of individuals and family throughout the new rehab process. That's really helpful thank you and naturally when you have a catastrophic injury and a brain injury the systems are quite complex um Mm. and I suppose for today's uh for the purposes of today's conversation we'll probably stick to the kind of the couple slash family realm if that's all right although I do appreciate that you have mentioned a whole bunch of other (laughs) Mm -hmm. systems um and because for me, as a case manager and as like a treating psychologist, we we often see the initial that that ripple impact of the injury immediately impacting on the the family with whom the injured person lives with. So if it's mm. a child, it's parents and siblings, and if it's an adult, it could be partner and possibly children if they're involved. And the impacts are huge, aren't they? The the, the sadness, the trauma, the grief, the loss. It's profound. Absolutely. And I think I think grief is a really useful word to use. And I think, um, you know, there are various models out there that help us understand um, the experience of kind of grief and loss that people are going through. Um, mm. Some strange reason now my mind has gone blank when I think of the, the, the grief model I use all the time. Um, but, I, I, but yeah, I, I think it's really important to understand that it's not just the individual that's going through grief but it's also family members and that's something that really comes up in the couple work is this sense of actually 
this is not the man I married or this is not the wife I had and and mm. and, and that, that experience of living grief so you're, you're mourning someone who is no longer there but unfortunately yeah. as a as a as a family member there's almost a sense of shame where you can't describe that that what you're going through and so you know you're you're plodding along you're you're being you're, you're being dutiful I guess um, and because that's the expectation that society has. So I know we don't really want to talk about or we don't want to bring too much of kind of culture, but I think it's really important that the narratives around how families should respond in this instances also mm-hmm. add to error burden. So the responsibility that are placed on spouses and the wider family to kind of look after someone whom actually probably needs much more support than the, what the family than, than what the family can afford um, is, is really, really quite key. Yeah. yeah. So, so I do I guess just to kind of um, support that point that yes, grief and loss is something that's happening to individuals, awful, and, and the family need to be supported alongside the individuals to kind of go through the adjustment process as well. Yeah, I mean it makes human sense that 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 anyone. I mean, I I I know it myself. You know, if anyone in my family is immediate family is poorly or unwell or or you know, and in this case, injured for the rest of their life you know, after which um, progress is is going to be probably somewhat limited in some cases, I can just imagine, well, I can't, I can only imagine just how impacting that is. I mean, I I think I, I think, I think that I once said it to a client, you know, it doesn't, it sounds like you're saying that it's not the life you subscribe to. That's not the life that you thought you were going to live. And so, it's um I think when you talk about shame and care a burden it's it's such an important recognition because we as case managers and therapists we're looking at rehabilitation for the individual because the individual is the client that is what the litigation Mm. process Mm. is built that is who the litigation process is built around but we all know and I'm sure you will be able to say more about this than I I can but without a system that is stable and an immediate family system that isn't stable around that client rehab, which is what we're all trying to achieve the, the best outcomes of is just going to be compromised. Is it not? I completely agree. And there are all the studies and research suggests that, you know, divorce and separation rates are anything between sort of 48 and 57% within um, the brain injury Mm. population. So I think, it's a shame, you know, I understand, I can understand from a legalistic, from a legal perspective, why the focus is, is in the, or on the individual. But I think really we need to sort of start to move on a little bit because the individual doesn't sort of recover by themselves. They need, they have, they need a system around them. And so I, I think it behoves um, the, 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 I guess the legal system to begin to think about how to support the families around the, and spouse, you know, couples, around kind of this journey to reduce the rates of separation and, and, um, and divorce. Because, you know, in some ways, if you, if you focus on the spouse, what you're doing is you're reducing the long-term or the ongoing cost that you're going to have to levy towards that individual in the first place anyway. So it's just mm. kind of economically actually makes sense to kind of invest in the system, invest in the partner as well, because then yeah. they together. They're much more likely to stay together. Um, yeah. where the model we have now you're seeing separations in, you know in, in, as the years go on and so you then need to pull more money in to kind of support the care for that individual and I think something that isn't really talked about a lot is adultification or 
parentification would materialize as for the you know the children in the family who kind of feel yes. compelled to take on adult realms you know and and that could be because you know um dad's dad's you know overwhelmed with what's happened to mom or mom's overwhelmed with what happened to dad but there's no support for children and it's really vital to kind of recognize that children and adolescents are at risk and they need access to therapies um the whole family needs support to kind of explore grief and loss and to kind of also the key thing is think about how you support them to understand what's happened so psychoeducation about brain injury mm-hmm. and also just kind of the day-to-day procedures to kind of re-engage you know the the injured person into constructive parent-child interactions and nurturing that re-involvement and kind of age-appropriate community activities you know that that's really important yeah yeah allowing children to be children within the context of a brain injury Mm -hmm. uh, and a brain injured family member um Mm -hmm. I don't suppose you've got any stats on a bit like where you were talking about um the the divorce rate um but the the, in terms of sort of survivor siblings um and the impact that brain injury has on their I guess quality of life or their their resilience or anything like that I don't know if there are many much research in fact on that I actually think sadly that you know research no one's really looking at this you know we haven't I mean as as it, as it is we're only really beginning to scratch the surface of how to support people who've had brain injury I don't think we've gone as far as starting to think about the you know the um you know in in in, in HIV they have this term called um the infected person the affected person so the infected is the mm. person with HIV they're affected are the people around them and I think in brain injury the affected people haven't even begun to be looked at so I don't there is no research out there looking at this to think about you know the impact on siblings the impact on 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 spouse you know it's it's not really been thought about a lot of the straight data that's come out has been very good at starting to say look we need to start thinking about the families we need to start thinking about those around the individual who's had a brain injury but the stats around the impact is, is is still um still left wanting really Oh, so interesting because we we know. I mean, I don't think anyone listening will find it unusual to say that uh, you know anything that you would challenge anything that you've said. That you know, sadness, grief, traumatic responses. Uh, you could talk about coping and and carer burden, as you've talked about resilience and family functioning are are experiences following a brain injury for the families, and yet you know we kind of we know about it and and it doesn't seem unusual or weird you know to say a family can be devastated by a brain injury but we don't mm-hmm. kind of have it seems like the research is is in need of 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 some of those stats and and some of that long term i know there's lots of individual differences within that but you know sort of the researchers are very clever they know how to kind of control for those and and um you know to to answer some really interesting and important questions but I think we see it anyway without, I think, I think I would imagine that our listeners would know from their own clinical experience, whether as a case manager or um, as a solicitor working with personally injured, uh, personal injury clients, that actually the, the impact is quite clearly there um, mm-hmm. to the point of extremity. So we have worked with families where very, very, very sadly parents have decided one you know one parent has decided that they don't want to be here anymore and uh, mm. and has taken their life um oh, and we've yeah I mean that that does that's real and the impact like, a bit like what you were saying kind of if you can manage that early on are you then preventing that crisis 
later on, which will then need now needs to be dealt with within that family, not just for the injured person, but for their family that is absolutely devastated by this second awful, awful event. Yeah. Um, we've worked with families where, you know, that there, there is behavior issues in siblings and it's been, it, it's felt a bit like a battle to have that recognized as something that is in its, I suppose, in its own right, something that ought to be uh, addressed, but actually does also have an impact in return. So the injury impacts the, the sibling, but the sibling or other family member then impacts on the client as well. If for some reason, that can sometimes feel a bit removed in ter- when you think about it in terms of litigation um, and um, the litigation strategy, because it's not the client often no but I, everything I wonder, impacts the clients eventually <laughs> yeah it does but I, I wonder if that's an uh I don't want to say an issue but I wonder if this is more of a sort of uh, a, a sort of gap for policymakers or people who are driving because mm. I guess you know what we do is driven by the data what we decide is important is driven by you know recommendations and I think because the research isn't there yet mm. um it's not yet in the sort of um, sight guys or consciousness, I guess, of, of the, those making decisions about how or what, you know, what's the treatment and what's the most important treatment for these people. But I think for, you know, these individuals with brain injury. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's almost kind of like prevention is the best of the cure, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's like my favourite saying. <laughs> it's like, you know. And then that's a really interesting point because as case managers and solicitors, we're quite, we're often there not so much as treating psychologists as case managers and solicitors where they're kind of at the earlier stages of the impact journey that, you know, the, the rehabilitation journey or the, well, not even rehabilitation by that point, depending on the fun, the funding position, but where they're sort of noticing what the client needs, what the family might also need. Um, and I think there's massive variation. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you see this as a as a someone who gets referrals from case managers or solicitors. And uh, the I don't know if you get access to um, initial um, immediate needs assessments mm. and whether people are focusing on any systemic factors as a standard or is it a bit hit and miss? It is a bit hit and miss. And I think... Mm. If I, um, if I, when I do my assessment as a psychologist and I put in, oh, this person would benefit from, you know, one to four sessions of family work. This person also needs couple work. It's like, well, why do they need it? Sorry, can you just justify why this is important? And it's just like, are you, you know, to me, it, it begs belief that it requires justification. Because it's, it's yes. so immediately obvious to me as a psychologist. It's just like, what? Yeah, okay, sure. And then, of course, you, you, you know, you, you look for the literature, which there are, you know, there's a dearth uh, in terms of the literature, but you, you try as best as you can to say why that's important. I think it almost helps me, I guess, where people think about it a little bit, I don't know if I should say this a bit more, but I think it's much more obvious when you're working with um, clients from minority backgrounds because I, hmm. because the different world views and ways of kind of relating and being things are much more kind of collective it's a much more collective society so I think in those instances it's much more to the forefront why why it would be important to kind of work with the family and why it's key but what 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 I guess would be missing whether it's a minority or majority population what's all what usually is missing is kind of 
if the person's married or in a relationship, the couple mm. very rarely work see it's seen as almost like luxurious, you know, oh um, no, 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 that's not needed. You know, that person can get, you know, the spouse can go and have therapy by the NHS, but isn't it's not really thought about that. Hang on, the two of them need to be seen together. Um, yeah. you know is the maintenance of the problem or kind of what perpetuates the issues within the couple dynamic and actually that's what needs to be addressed so yeah. I think um, yeah there's, there's there's a lot of work to be done in this area mm. and that massively impacts rehabilitation which again I always come back to but that's what we're trying to achieve we're trying to get those mm-hmm. maximized rehab outcomes and is this a missing piece of the puzzle I think you're saying it is and we also, I mean, what I feel I'm also hearing is that we potentially run the risk of buying into that expectation, the unspoken implicit expectation that, you know, you should be ashamed to leave if you think, or you should be, you should be more dutiful than thinking about yourself in this situation, because you're not the injured person, but you should be there for your partner. You know, you should do everything, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that's making sense, but it kind of yeah, almost no. by not addressing the the needs of the um the surviving surviving couple member that you're almost saying well you're minimizing or or and you know ignoring the the truth which is actually maybe they don't feel that they can they can do they should be any different no absolutely I think that 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 is the case I think by not providing the service what we're saying as a collective is this is the expectation the narrative is if yeah. someone's injured you must look after them because, and, and if you don't, you're a bad person. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, and it is interesting that you 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 brought in earlier the cultural element to that. The cross, you know, the I mean, I know coming from a collectivist culture, it's just not even that duty is already bound into our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that sense of shame and dutifulness and expectation is massive. But I find sometimes that the litigation model does not allow for that as well and and it raises and this is probably a, another episode for another time but it, it it raises the question about how you support a family where the culture is inherently um to to look within the family to support rather than external agencies or support workers to come in and pick up what does that mean to the family what does that do to a family because litigation mm-hmm. will want to maximize settlement um and sometimes you know the route into that is through the care and the care being the biggest component and it then doesn't there isn't space to be a family carer sometimes um and that can be really controversial but are we doing our families a, a big disservice but then we're also opening this idea up that they might need some psychological support which I think would be the case anyway but even more mm-hmm. so for some of our cultural clients yeah, I would say so. I think the massive part of that is, particularly if you're thinking about, you know, vocation rehab, trying to get people back to work. These are people mm. who, before brain injury, would have experienced discrimination from society at large anyway. How much mm. more so when they have a disability? Now, I think not being able to kind of consider those um, nuances, those cultural um um variables you you do the service of the family the service even in kind of calculating what the settlement should be because you're not into consideration the sort of double jeopardy that that person or that family is having to go through and 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 and, you know in the the sort of the functioning role that or or the work role that has to then 
be allocated to maybe another member of the family. And usually it kind of brings us back to what we talked about in terms of adultification of children or parentification. Mm. Is that just that role just goes right back to the next person who can do it, you know, and there's no thought or consideration about, you know, impact on people's exams or the pressure that, oh my goodness, I'm, I have to go to work because, you know, dad can't work anymore and mom can't work. So I'm, I'm the breadwinner now. There's no, I, I don't think we, we, we spend time thinking through the impact for the family and, and that really needs to change. Mm, definitely. It's, it's something about seeing what the responses are to the mm. injury rather than perhaps the effects as well um, yes. that, that fits. Um, and that's really, I, I like what you said, double, double jeopardy of this situation that's a really cool phrase I'm totally going to take that I will will refer to you on it though so (laughs) Um, um, there's something in the role of being involved with a family quite early on before even an MDT is in place before we've referred to Ndidi at um, the psych practice or Shabnam Berikhan at Psychworks Associates or whatever maybe there's some value in understanding what seems to be a hit or miss reference for our personal injury professional peers right at that sort of early stage for those to to to, to support um the work that uh, the case managers and, and personal injury lawyers do before there's all that support in place what is it that you think what three things would you say that we ought to consider when we're say doing our immediate needs assessment or when we're thinking about the psychological needs of the family or even just even in terms of rehabilitation needs forget psychology just what (laughs) what are we seeing as a response to this injury what three things would you say that we we could collectively as a as a group think about I I guess this kind of a reflection I think the main thing number one would be to involve the family they they will know their loved ones best you know um, they know them particularly this is key where there's multiple layers you know, in terms of identity, ethnicity, religion, things, things that will shape treatment. I think all of that's going to be really useful. And I think, you know, I would be thinking maybe doing some kind of care burden measure at that point, you know, just to sort of mm. check how are the family members feeling. Some of these things are very easily downloadable these days on Google, thankfully. Um, and I would say even having access to materials such as, you know, My Parent Has a Brain Injury by Joe Johnson's a really good book for kind of parents. Mm. Um, kind of the, the parents are kind of talk through with their um, children what's happened to um the, you know whether it's dad or mom to help them kind of understand what's happened even very basic measures even the yell question are you depressed or not you know um that's yeah. that's something that anyone could ask it doesn't require you to have a psychological degree a psychology degree um but but it's a it's a simple standard question to just check in on mood um, and that could help you decide whether or not to refer to psychology, to kind of um, decide the degree of, of, of distress within a family or within a couple, or within the individual. Um, I think those are those would be the three key things I would say um, are, are really important. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thank you. Because I think um, there is a, a responsibility, maybe it's maybe too strong a word, but there is a, a role that we as early intervention case management rehab practitioners <laughs> when, you know, have to be able to capture the, the fullest breadth of need that is ultimately going to impact on the best outcomes from a rehabilitation perspective. Mm. Um, and that, you know, 
to hold on to that idea that family resilience, the sense of res- sort of building resourcefulness and, and um, family functioning is really, really super important um, mm-hmm. in allowing the goals that we're all explicitly trying to achieve be achieved. And I mean, for me, it's it's about having a sense of case conceptualization with that. That mm. um, when you when you think of you know what we psychologists would say formulation, but it, it's that idea of having a, a sort of story and narrative that that makes sense for the for the client, and then using the strength of the knowledge of what what fits that client, and using mm. that as your intervention points. And I think almost always we will assume certainly with pediatric clients, but certainly not exclusively so because our adult clients will say you know it's so much nicer having someone who you know having a partner right right by me who gets me and 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 has had support in helping get me um Mm -hmm. and there's no shame in that at all but the impact it can have on the uh the experience the quality of life going forward um and allowing people to live the best life possible it's not an individual pursuit, is it really? Um, or it's not an, a pursuit that can be achieved as an individual. It needs that scaffolding for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Ndidi Boyachi, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. If people want to get hold of you um, <laughs> through the service that you offer, which is the psych practice, tell us how we can do that. Very easily. <laughs> ah, how helpful. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of an email address, um, all referrals can go through on um, admin at the psychpracticetpp.com or I could just be um, contacted by telephone. Um, my contact number is 0208-058-4060. So 4060. So 0208- 058 4060. Um, another email address to get hold of me is just Dr. at gmail.com. So that sounds pretty simple. It's just my name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's exactly it. And do you hang out on social media at all? Is there, can we find you on, say, LinkedIn or Facebook or um, all these other young people games? <laughs> <laughs> you can certainly find me on LinkedIn um, just under. Um, adopting Diddy Boachi. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, which is at the site practice um, TPP. Um, and we're just creating our Facebook page. So we're on social mm. media. Our handles are everywhere. Um, Excellent. The, yeah, I'm just going to say the website is this www.thesitepracticetpp.com. Thank you. Brilliant. That's amazing. Oh, thank you, Ndidi. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about and I'm sure we will be doing this again. But for now, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, not at all. And for those of you who've been listening in and you like what you hear, please share, like and comment on, um, on, on social media and whatever platform you're listening on. All right. Thanks for listening. Cheers for now. Bye-bye. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. 
thank you so much for all your support.